All right, I want you to turn with me, uh, Proverbs 11.24. In fact, they're going to put it up on the screen in the message translation. Uh, I just think the message really captures the, the spirit and the essence of this verse. Proverbs 11.24 in the message translation says, The world of the generous gets gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. There's a couple of other scriptures. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 is the famous scripture verses. Uh, Christmas verses, sorry. Uh, For unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. Uh, The government shall be upon his shoulders. And then verse 7 says about the increase of his government, there will be no end. Everyone say increase. Jesus said in Matthew, in Mark chapter 4, sorry, to what shall I liken the kingdom of God? What parable shall he use to describe it? He said, it is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown into the ground is smaller than all the seeds. But when it is sown, it becomes greater than all the herbs and becomes a large tree, putting out large branches where the birds of the air nest in its branches. So it starts almost insignificant, the tiniest of all seeds, and yet it grows great. Jesus said, this is a picture. This is a snapshot of the kingdom of God. I want you to know that God's plan for you is increase. God's plan for you is increase. Everything God does begins as a seed and ends in a harvest. Everything God does begins as a seed and ends as as a harvest. Can I just tell you that whether you realize that or not, whether even now you're kind of grappling with the complexities of that thought, the devil believes it. The devil believes that things begin as a seed and end in a harvest. How can you say that for a fact? Very simple, because the devil tried to kill all the male children in Egypt. He tried to kill all the male Israelite children because he knew that a savior, a deliverer was coming. And so he knew if he can kill the seed, he can prevent the harvest. The attack on Moses, Moses slipped through. Now, now Pharaoh's own daughter said, it's just a little, she brought him to daddy, can I keep him? Oh, daddy, please, can I keep him? It's just a little baby. You know, like your kids do with a stray cat or a dog. Can I keep? I promise I'll feed it. And they do for about an hour. And then it becomes your responsibility. And, and, and so she's like, and so Pharaoh looks at this little Hebrew baby. Now he's made an edict, he's made a decree that every male uh, Israelite child is to be drowned, is to be thrown into the Nile. She says, I fished him out and he lived. So Pharaoh looks at little baby Moses and says, oh, my kid, it hurt. It's just an innocent baby. Look at him, so helpless. The one seed he allowed to live did what? That one seed he allowed to live brought down the entire dynasty of Egypt because everything begins as a seed, ends as a harvest. Herod was trying to wipe out all the children under three because even the devil believes that things begin as a seed and end in a harvest. Where is he, said the wise men, who who was born king of the Jews? 
please show us where he is. They went to the palace. They stopped following God's lead and decided to ask the locals for directions. They thought if he's a king, he's got to have been born in the palace. And so when Herod heard that there was a king who was born, that these wise men had been trekking for three and a half years from the Middle East following a star in the sky, Herod became very, very insecure and threatened because he didn't have no star in the sky. He didn't have people traveling thousands and thousands of miles on on, on a pilgrimage with, with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, with, with vast caravans of camels carrying uh, all these goods and gold and spices and, and to worship a baby. But he just knew because the devil believes that things begin as a seed and end in a harvest. Things begin. In, all right. Uh, in Genesis, God created a garden, but in Revelation, it's a city. Everything God does begins as a seed, ends in a harvest. I'm trying to help you here today. Jesus was born in a stable. He was the son, as it was, of a Jewish carpenter, and he was born in a stable. He wasn't. He wasn't born in a hospital. There was no notoriety. There was no fanfare. Time magazine wasn't there. The paparazzi wasn't there. Savior of the world born in a stable there was there was no there was no photographer there was just Jesus laid in a manger in a feeding trough in a stable not even in a hotel or hospital in a stable in the tiniest of all the towns Bethlehem of Ephrathah of the smallest one of the smallest nations on the planet the nation of Israel and yet 2,000 years later all who call upon the name of that baby born in that he was a, he was as small as a mustard seed but when it has grown it's stretches out large branches that whosoever calls on the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. That he was born, but now he sits at the right hand of the power, making intercession on the saints. Don't ever, don't ever discount what God is doing in your life by the size of the seed today. For goodness sake, sow the seed today. Sow the seed of God. Can I just tell you that God's will for you is for you to increase. I met Jesus Christ January 1986. I had a few friends. I had a job. But I've got to tell you, since 1986, my world, as I yielded to God, as I pressed into God, as I pushed into God, I found that I put, pressed into something. I found as I stepped into the kingdom of God, I stepped into a kingdom where there is a magnifying effect where my life began to increase. The influence began to increase. The anointing began to increase. The joy began to increase. The blessing began to increase. The favor began to increase. You'll find as you step out of the kingdom, your life will decrease again. Kingdom, kingdom and increase go together. The Bible says, and the increase of His government. If your life is shrinking, maybe you stepped out from under His government. Maybe He ain't the governor of your life no more. The title of this message today is, Honey, I Shrunk My Life. Honey, I Shrunk My Life. Because I want to give you as many points as I can get today on <laughs> things you don't want to do to shrink your life. Do you realize there are things you can do to shrink God's purposes for your life? Now, you know, a, a, lot, of, a lot of people are going to get upset with that theology. Are you saying that we have the power to make God weaker? No, of course we don't. But His power in your life 
is voluntary. You can either open your heart and receive His power or you can close your heart and have His power bypass you and touch somebody else. Mark chapter 6, Jesus came into His hometown of Nazareth wanting to do a mighty work, wanting to do mighty works. He told him about all the great miracles he did everywhere else. And the Bible says, and the people there were offended at him, saying, we went to school with him. He played in our streets. Is this not the carpenter's son? Are not his brothers, James and Josie's and his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. Scripture says, and Jesus could do no mighty work in his hometown, save he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Only time in Scripture where it says Jesus could do no mighty work. Only time it says, well, he just laid his hands on a few. Everywhere else, and Jesus healed all who were oppressed of the devil and all who had diseases and all who had infirmities and all who were tormented by demon spirits came to him and he healed them all. Everywhere else was all. Here it was a few. Was it God's power? It wasn't God's power. It was their unbelief that shut down the power of God from flowing in their life. You look like you need some more convincing. Psalm 78 verse 41 says, Yet a time and time again, the children of Israel, the children of Israel limited the Holy One of Israel because of several things that they did in their life. Don't ever believe, don't ever believe that if God wants me to have it, He'll just make me have it independent of how I live. That's the biggest lie of the devil. That's why I struggle with a lot of the, the Calvinistic doctrine because it basically says that God is just God and uh, you and I, are irrelevant our choices are irrelevant if our choices are irrelevant I got to tell you then why is it there's not a week that goes by where we're not counseling somebody we're not praying with somebody we're not crying with somebody we're not helping somebody who is living in the aftermath of bad choices and bad decisions can I just tell you God gave you a will God gave you a free will we are in this mess because Adam chose with his free will to take what God said was forbidden and we are saved because the second Adam, Jesus, in the Garden of Eden under the same level of, of temptation, maybe even greater, said, not my will, thy will be done. Instead of reaching out his hand to take from a tree, he reached out both his arms and gave himself to be hanging on a tree so that you and I could be redeemed. Somebody say amen. So God wants our life to increase, but there are things that we do that shrink our lives. Honey, I shrunk my life. Number one, last week we looked at complaining. Complaining. Don't be a complainer. Complaining is the language of victims. Complain, complaining is the prophetic declaration that your problems are bigger than your God. Complaining is the prophetic declaration that you are declaring in full view of heaven and earth that your problems are greater than your God. Nothing grieves God more than complaining. Let me just tell you this, neuroscience, neuroscience, the latest, the latest studies in neuroscience basically communicate this, that you can literally, you are literally killing yourself slowly by complaining. Neuroscience teaches that, that uh, synapses that fire together, wire together. That literally you begin to shape your most dominant thoughts and your dispositions by the thoughts that you think. They're discovering that people who constantly go to the negative, constantly gripe, constantly complain, constantly live in pessimism, actually end up with more sickness, 
with more disease, with more bills, with more calamities, because synapses that fire together, wire together. And they found that people who begin to fill themselves with positive, begin to fill themselves with the Word of God, begin to fill themselves with the promise of God, they don't speak out of their emotion, they don't speak out of their circumstance, they don't speak it out of their calamity, that yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. He will not forsake me, He will neither leave me nor forsake me in this valley, because He's got promises over my life. Why do you need to get to New Year's Eve? Because at New Year's Eve, they're going to be promises unleashed upon your life. Can I just tell you, you need a vision in your life. The reason God put our eyes in the front of our head is because you and I are meant to be looking forward. The devil knows this to be a fact, so he wants you to always be looking backwards. We call it rowboat Christianity. You're moving this way, but you're looking back that way. You're looking back at a mistake. You're looking back at a regret. You're looking back with remorse. You're looking back at maybe a celebration or a heyday, believing that your best days are behind you. Uh, uh, uh. God wants to give you a vision. You know, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans. I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Good thoughts, not evil, to give you a future and a hope. He wants you to be looking forward. When you're looking forward, it's because you've got a promise from God. That's why we are a prophetic church. We are a prophetic church. We want to get you filled with the Holy Spirit. We want you speaking in languages you ain't learned so that you can then begin to step out again into the prophetic so you can be a prophetic people because people need the voice of the prophetic. And let me tell you, the church created a vacuum when she moved away from the gifts of the Spirit, when she shut down prophecy. There was just, there was no, there was not that there was, there was no prophecy. No, no, all the, all the psychics and the tarot card readers and those who, who were fought fortune tellers and filled with demonic spirits stepped into the gap and they began to put curses over people who are hungry for vision, hungry for revelation. You and I need the promises of God. I don't know about you, but I look at all my mistakes and I realize that greater than my activity, greater than my human abilities and greater than my failures and accomplishments is what God has said because God is not a man that He should lie. So I hang my hat. I rest my faith. I trust in what God has said. If God has said it, all he needs is for me to believe it and that settles it. Somebody say amen. So I declare in the midst of my trial, I declare in the midst of my challenge, I declare in the midst of my difficulties, not what I'm feeling, not what I'm going through, not what I'm walking through, not what the circumstances say, but I begin to declare what God has promised. I begin to speak the Word of God and you will find your world will increase, but complaining decreases your world. Second one is isolation. The second one we looked at last week is isolation. The Bible says a fool isolates himself and rages against all wise counsel. Don't be someone who isolates yourself. Satan saves his greatest uh, power of temptation for when we're isolated. The Scripture says, And the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness, out into a solitary place, Jesus was isolated when he felt the brunt of the full force of satanic temptation hit him. Nowhere does it say Jesus with his disciples was tempted. Nowhere does it say Jesus surrounded by the crowds were tempted. The devil knows that you are most vulnerable to his onslaught and attack when you're alone, when you're isolated, when nobody's 
watching, when everyone's gone to bed, when it's the late hours of the evening, when, when no one's around, when you're in a city that nobody knows you, when you're in a hotel room that is far away from home, you are never mo- more vulnerable to satanic attack. That's why the first of our four pathway steps is connect. Connect, grow, serve, lead. Because the first thing God said wasn't good was for man to be alone. You and I need to be in connection. Every single serial killer that they catch, when they interview neighbors, when they interview work colleagues, all have the same testimony. They all say, yeah, you know, he's a quiet guy. Kept mainly to himself. And you work with Bob. He was at the workstation next to you. Yeah, you know, he was kind of a loner. He kind of isolated himself. He was always alone. Didn't have a whole lot of friends. In every single one of those cases, can I tell you, the reason God said it's not good for man to be alone is because it's not good for man to be alone. Every married man said, amen. But let me just tell you more than just companionship, more than just fellowship, that there's something, something healthy for your soul. Adam wasn't alone. He had God. The Bible says that God walked with man in the cool of the day. Adam and God had unbroken fellowship. This is Genesis 2. This is before sin. God would walk with Adam. God would fellowship with Adam. And yet it was God who said, you know, this is not good for man to be alone. Here's the truth. I can't completely explain it. But in the 30 years that I've been a Christian, I've got to tell you the weirdest people that I've ever met are the people who have got this going on. God, God this and God that and God spoke to me and God and they're always talking to God. But they're never talking to... And they're just weird. I'm telling you, they're just weird. I see them, you know, they're... Like you talk to them and everything's God this and God that and God this and God... And uh, have you got a job? No, I, you know, I was praying all night. I was praying all night, and so I can't work today. Adam, Adam had this, and God says, this is not enough. You also need this. The cross doesn't just repair the broken, severed relationship between us and heaven. It also repairs the broken relationship of fellowship with one another. You need other people. You need other people. Like that serial killer that they caught, it was, you know, eating people. Can you imagine if he went to Colin Tubbs Connect Group? Can you imagine if, 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 if he like, you know, comes up to Colin and says, Hey, hey, Colin, next week for Connect, what about we um, dress in grandma's clothes and we eat humans? Do you think Colin is going to... He's going to say, wait, he's going to go and get his hockey stick. And he's going to beat the fetish for human flesh out of that guy. He will save lives. But when you're isolated, you're alone with your thoughts. You're like, yeah. You know, the first time you hear it, oh, that's, oh, that's a bit crazy. <laughs> a bit out there. Wear grandma's dresses and eat people. <laughs> yeah, but then the second time you hear it, you're like, oh, actually, I wonder what that. And then the third time is like, yeah. And you don't want to be there. You need people in your life. Don't isolate yourself. Connect. 
connect. Listen, this is what I've discovered. I've discovered people join connect and then they retreat when somebody tells them something they don't want to hear. Well, you know, God didn't, God didn't, God didn't, God didn't. No, 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 no. God's too nice. He's always positive. You need other people. Like I'm telling you, if you just only wait for God, God'll, you need other people. The Bible says, David speaking, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. He slept with Bathsheba, killed her husband Uriah and was completely fine sitting on his throne until, until Nathan the prophet came and said, oh, uh, you're obviously not hearing from God. Can I just tell you a little story? And David's like, yeah, tell me the story. He says, well, there was a guy, he had one, one little lamb. That's all he had, poor, poor man. So this man was so poor, loved that little lamb. The lamb would even sleep on his chest in the bed. He'd keep the lamb warm, the lamb would keep him warm. And a rich guy lived next door, had a big vast estate, had hundreds of sheep, had a friend come from out of town. Instead of taking one of his sheep from the flock, he went to that one man and took his only lamb. And he slayed it and he offered it up as a meal. David rose. Because here's, here's the truth. You never judge so harshly as when you're under judgment yourself. You ever hear somebody who's very cynical, very quick to judge? You can guarantee they're under judgment. Jesus says, woe you who judge, lest you be judged. You who judge others, are you under judgment? You who say, do not steal, do you? You, you, you? you never judge so harshly as when you're under judgment. Guilt, shame, condemnation for your own sin. So David rises up and says, that man should be put to death. And Nathaniel, uh, Nathan the prophet says, interesting. You are that man. You've got a whole harem of wives. And you see a young lady, the wife of one of your soldiers, the, the wife of one of your volunteers. And instead of going into what God has blessed you with, you take from that young man and then have him murdered. You are that man. And it broke David. David wasn't listening to God. Then David wrote in the Psalms, let the righteous strike me. It shall be a kindness. Let my head not refuse it. It is like the precious anointing oil. I want your life to increase. I want your life to increase. But I've got to ask you the question, are you an isolator or are you a connector? Can people tell you things that you don't want to hear? Because let me tell you, the size of your life is determined by the openness to allowing wise counsel, to allowing people to tell you things. That's why we raise and constantly are raising leaders to run connect groups. These are not people who are looking to control you or belittle you. These are people who have a heart to see the kingdom experience to see the kingdom expand, the blessing of God increase in your life. Don't be an isolator. Be a connector. Somebody said, amen. I spent way too much time on that. Number three was a miser. Don't be a miser. Don't be stingy. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller, but the world of the generous gets larger and larger. The reason that that is, is because when you're a miser, your vision is reduced to just you. See, a stingy person is thinking, oh, I can't give that, then I'll have nothing left for myself. And now your world is reduced to just you. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, 
man who'll wrap himself up in himself. Make very small package. If you're all wrapped up in yourself, you're just a very small package. God is not a miser. God is generous for God so loved the world. See, God had an object for his affection. It was other people. And when you begin to live for the blessing and benefit of other people, you know what will happen? Your world will enlarge. Don't let the devil trick you into being a miser, into being stingy. It will shrink your world to just about you. And you know what? If all you care about is you, you'll have an incredibly lonely Christmas. You'll sit there at a table with just you because that's all you ever cared about. The pathway to decrease, the pathway to loneliness, the pathway to emptiness is just care about you. Be stingy, be a minor. Well, you know, one of the problems I have with C3 churches every week, you got to get somebody up on that pulpit to share an inspirational message about giving. Exactly. Because we don't want you to shrink your world where it's all about what you got and what you don't got. We want you to enlarge your world where you're thinking of others, where you're extending because you'll find that God will increase your life. Number four was covetousness. We call that the Cain syndrome, covetousness. You know, it's one of the, the, the commandments. I think it's the ninth, thou shalt not covet. Commandment number nine. Uh, you know, in a restaurant, when you order your meal and you look over to a table, like, hey, what is that? You ordered this, but they're eating that. Yours is just kind of like, mm, yeah. And they've got happiness on a plate. You're like, where's that in the menu? I never saw happiness. I never saw blissful, delectable delight on the menu. Where did that? And, and that's called groking, where you covetousness kind of manifests in different ways. In Sydney, Australia, where Leanne and I live, if you, there were some restaurants and some places you didn't want to leave your car because if you had like a BMW or, you know, a European car or whatever, or even a, even a new car, even a new Nissan or whatever, chances are when you got out of that restaurant, someone would have keyed your car. Someone would have taken keys down there. The reason they do that is because they are envious. They are covetous of your blessing. They're covered. Let me, let me just say this. This is what we do as human beings. We judge people by their harvest rather than by the seeds that they've sown. See, God comes to Cain, Cain and Abel. Abel brings an offering from the firstborn, sacrifice in it, and God blesses it. Cain, the Bible says, just brought some leftovers, some, some of the fruit and veggies that fell on the ground. He's like, here you go, God. I was going to toss it out. I was going to go rotten, but I thought I'll give it to you. And God's like, yeah, it's not going to go good for you. If I bless you just giving me what's left over, then you'll just give me leftovers all your life. You'll always fall short. You'll always miss what I've got for you. You need to bring the best. You need to put me first. Then you'll find yourself living. And so Cain, rather than do what is right so he would be accepted, instead became covetousness, became envious of his brother, so he murdered him. See, when somebody drives in in a brand new BMW and someone gets up and shares the testimony that they got their dream home, inside of us we're like, oh, oh, oh. because they're entering into their harvest 
but we didn't see the seeds that they sowed. Everything in the kingdom begins as a seed and ends in a harvest. If that's their harvest, I guarantee you there were some seeds. You didn't, you didn't see the seeds of pain. You didn't see the seeds that they sowed in tears. The Bible says those who sow in tears shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bearing their sheaves, bearing their harvest with them. You didn't see the tears of them having to put themselves through college because there was no mama or papa there to put them through college. They put themselves through college. They, 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 they would finish study and then go down to, to wash dishes and, and work in the back room and, and putting themselves through college and then paying off their own student loans. And, and now that they're in their harvest, we want to we want to key their car because we're jealous of their harvest. Can I just tell you, we, we're jealous of them, but we refuse to pay the same price that they paid. Let me tell you, God is no respecter of persons. If God will bless that one, God will bless you. All we got to be doing is, well, Cain refused to do what was right. He thought, I'd rather kill and attack the person with blessing than change my life lifestyle habits. Let's not be that kind of church. Let's not be that kind of people. When you see somebody get up and share a testimony that they, you know, got their harvest, that they got their new car, that they got their dream home, that they got their, you know, whatever it is that they got, rejoice with them. Even if on the inside you're feeling jealous, you're feeling envious, just force yourself. Just just move over and say, soul, you are not going to rob me. You're not going to destroy this thing. I'm going to rejoice with those who rejoice and I'm going to weep with those who weep. Because listen, when you rejoice, when you rejoice in someone else's calamity, God's hand comes off you. He can't bless that. He cannot bless that. Let's not live in covetousness. Somebody say, amen. Number five was forgiveness. Number five was, well, sorry, was unforgiveness. Nothing will shrink your life like unforgiveness. Jesus tells a story where a guy owes $500,000 and the master calls him and says, hey, today's the last day you meant to pay it back. You haven't paid a cent back. The guy drops to his knees and says, please have mercy. He says, no, you're in the prison. He said, you know, you've had plenty of time. You've had ample time. I loaned this to you. It's, It's due today. You know, throw him into prison, sell his houses, sell his cars, all his possessions, his wives and children if you need to. But today we're paying the debt. The guy weeps, please, please have mercy. Just have mercy, have mercy. The Bible says the man was so moved with compassion. He says, you know what, my God. He says, debt's cancelled. The guy gets up, thank you, thank you, walks out and finds a guy who owes him $5,000. He grabs the guy and says, where's my $5,000? And the guy says, oh, have mercy. He says, you know, I... I have made great decisions. I, I, I don't have it. The Bible says that man threw that guy into the prison. You're going into prison till every last cent is paid. When the original guy finds out what had happened, he calls this guy and says, hey, what did you do? He says, oh, you owed me five grand, so I threw him into prison. I forgave you 500 grand. Shouldn't you have had compassion on him? This is Jesus speaking. So the Bible says Jesus, the, the master grabbed that man, threw him into prison where he was handed over to the tormentors. Likewise, will your heavenly Father do to you and I when we, from our heart, do not forgive. See, the truth is, what God forgave you and I is far greater than what anyone has ever done to us. And if we choose to live in unforgiveness, we block the flow of God. See, when I got saved, I, ref- I, I, I said to God, that's it, I'm going to you know, serve you. And, uh, and God said, you, 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 need to, uh, you need to forgive your dad. <laughs> he ain't asking. When he asks, maybe I'll consider it. And God said to me, uh, no, mate, uh, that's not how forgiveness works. Forgiveness is an act of divinity. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what, what they do. 
the Bible says, that when Jesus hung on the cross, the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, we weren't asking for forgiveness and God forgave. Not only were we not asking, the Bible says we were not even deserving. Because my second retort to God was, okay, well, you know, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. And God said, I'm not asking you to forgive him because he's asking. And I'm not asking you to forgive him because he's deserving. I'm asking you to forgive him because I forgave you before you asked and before you deserve. I forgave you. Now, my power is blocked and my power is stopped because you've rolled the stone of unforgiveness over your heart. Roll away the stone and then my power can flow through you and begin to heal a very hurt and very broken world. I did not want to forgive my dad. I didn't want to forgive my dad. The saddest thing is that, you know, my dad sadly has very lonely Christmases. He would not forgive his father. And then when we were growing up, he would... He would uh, repeat the same sins of his father who was an abusive alcoholic. He would get drunk. He would beat up mom. And when my little brother and I tried to protect mom, we would get beat up as well. My goal from 14 years of age was when I turned 18, I felt like I was physically strong enough. My goal was I was going to beat my dad's head in. I was going to beat him up for all the shame, for the, the times where mom couldn't go outside because she was so ashamed of an eye that was black and swollen shut and lips that were that were broken and, and, and I was going to beat him up. Instead, I got saved. So I just said, okay, that's it. I disown. I, just, I, I don't have an earthly father. I just have a heavenly father. And God said, Jürgen, you got to forgive him. You put a lid on your, your ministry. I said, God, I can pray. I can read the Bible and I got a preaching gift. And God says, Jürgs, if you don't forgive him, you will dilute and you will pollute what you minister you can't get around this issue. You need to forgive him. He doesn't deserve it. You need to forgive him. He's not asking. You need to forgive him because you're tormented. You're the one. My dad and my little brother still have animosity. He won't forgive my little brother. My little brother won't forgive him. So Christmas is a lonely time of the year. Christmas where it's meant to be an exchanging of gifts. It's meant to be a celebration of life. There's meant to be words of, I'm so glad you were born. I love you, Dad. I love you, son. Words where there's, you know, a world where there's meant to be hugs and love and affirmation and reinforcement of affection and value. Instead, it's lonely over here and lonely over there. Nothing will shrink your life. Nothing will reduce it and make it bitter and miserable like unforgiveness. Absolutely, the devil will whispering in your ear is 100% correct. They're not asking. They're not deserving. Absolutely, he is 100% correct. They're not asking nor deserving. But you know what? You're the one that's tormented. Take a leaf out of God's book. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and the Romans were gambling for his clothes, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They weren't asking, neither were they deserving, but he forgave them. When you and I forgive, we're the ones released from the torment. We're the ones released from the prison. Don't live in a prison. Don't live in torment. Let the power of God touch your life. Let the power of God transform you. So I remember forgiving my dad and I'll share this story because I shared it in the, in the 8.30. Literally, I, I said to God in, in my, my dorm room when I was at Bible college, I said, okay, God, you know, I forgive my dad. It was maybe a month, a few weeks. I can't remember. A little while after that, I, 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 was, I had a dream and in the dream, I saw this little boy and I saw this little boy sitting on the end of his bed with chocolates the chocolates were all kinds of different shapes, shells and all kinds of things. And he would just look at him and then he put the lid back on and he put it under his bed. 
He'd go to school, come home from school, and he'd get the box and he'd open the lid and he'd look at the chocolates. He wouldn't eat them. And I remember just being so puzzled. Why wouldn't he eat the chocolate? Then one day the little boy came home and he reaches under his bed and the chocolates are gone. He's running around everywhere asking his brothers and sisters, did you take the chocolates? Did you take the chocolates? And then his daddy comes out of the bedroom. He's got chocolate on his lips. The little boy looks up and says, is that my chocolate? And the dad hits the little kid, knocks him into the wall. I woke up, I thought, God, that is just, what are you doing? That's not PG-13. A few months later, I'm talking to my dad. I said, Dad, you know, what was your father like? All this bitterness and rage comes out. He begins to tell me a story about the fact that when his mum died, when he was five, his dad remarried. And the woman that he remarried already had her own children. He says, whenever they would act up, she would always blame him. And his father had turned to alcoholism, basically drove the, the family financially into the ground. But he would, he would take all his anger, all his frustration out and beat who was my dad as a little boy. He said, then one year, one of his best friends saw that he never got anything. So gave him some uh, chocolates for Easter. Dad said, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to eat them. He said, so I just put them under my bed. He said, and I'd pull them out and I'd just sit there and I'd look at all the different shapes. He says, one day I came home and they were gone. I ran around asking, where are they? He says, then I saw my dad walk out of his bedroom with chocolate in his mouth. I said, hey, is that my chocolate? He said, and he beat me into the ground. See, I saw that vision because I first forgave. I was holding all kinds of bitterness and anger. You don't know what someone else has walked through. You don't know what has made them like that. God sees the end from the beginning. God sees beyond our facades. He sees behind our fig leaves. He, he sees the pain that has shaped that person, that has twisted that person. We judge based on what's done to us and God is saying, will you forgive? When you forgive, it releases something over you. True story, when I forgave my dad, God said, I want you to take it one step further. I want you to tell him that you love him. They were words I never heard. I never heard the words, I love you. Never growing up. But on our wedding day, I said to God, okay, on my wedding day, I'll do it. I was more nervous about that promise. <laughs> than Leanne's agenda. <laughs> I was more nervous about the promise. Of, and I remember right at the end of, of the reception, I hugged my dad and I said, dad, I want you to know. I love you. And it was so difficult to get the words out. My heart was pounding in my chest and I grabbed him in a bear hug and he's, he's trying, oh, you're okay, you're okay. And he's trying to get out. He was so uncomfortable with those words. And the Holy Spirit said, say him again. So I said, dad, I want you to know I love you. You're okay, you're okay. And he's trying to, and so a third time I say, dad, I love you. As soon as I did that, I felt something break. When we got back from our honeymoon, uh, my dad goes to this German club where they all drink. Well, his, his drunk friends come up to me, hey! What happened to Ronnie? My dad's name's Ronald. What happened to Ronnie? I said, what do you mean? Ever since your wedding, he's become a softy. <laughs> Something changed. I watched him with Jordan. I watched him with Asher. I watched him with Tommy. I watched him with Zoe. I love you, cuddling. Something broke over him. Something broke over him. You have no idea what is released when we forgive. They're the five I got through last week, and I'm out of time. Really quickly, number six, selfishness. Selfishness. 
Cain said, what? Am I my brother's keeper? God said to him, Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? Cain says, what? Am I my brother's keeper? You want to shrink your world? Have that attitude. What, am I responsible for anyone else? You want to shrink your world? Cain, his world shrunk. Not only did he lose a brother, but he lost a home. He became a vagabond wandering in the earth. And his own testimony out of his own lips were, God, the, the judgment you've put on me is too great for me to bear, for it will be when someone finds me, they will kill me. His world became incredibly small because of that spirit. Don't have that spirit. What? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, absolutely. That's You, you are your brother's keeper. Well, I don't understand. Why should I join a connect group? I don't feel I need it. No, no, other people need you to be in that connect group. There is something that you only you can bring to that connect group. There is a life, there is a value, there is counsel, there is affection, there is thought. We need you in a connect group. There are people who are going to say to you on Judgment Day, thank you. Thank you for being in that connect group. Thank you for challenging me. Thank you for pulling me back from making that dumb decision. Thank you for your example. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your Christmas card. Thank you for what you wrote in it. Man, that changed my life. That rocked my Don't let the devil get you to think, hey, I'm not responsible for anybody else. What am I, my brother? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's not be selfish and shrink our lives. The music's playing. <laughs> Number seven, really quickly, is fear. Fear will shrink your life. Don't live in fear. Fear, false evidence appearing real. Fear is believing something you can't see will happen. Oh my God, oh my God, it's, it's a lump, it's probably cancer. Oh my gosh, she was meant to be home half an hour ago. Maybe she's had a car accident. Spirit of fear is believing something you can't see will happen. So different to faith. The Bible says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. But the Bible says the just shall live by faith. What is faith? Faith is believing something you can't see will happen. 2016 is going to be my greatest year yet. We're going to buy a home. I'm going to meet my spouse. We're going to get pregnant and have our first child. Faith is believing something you can't see will happen. So different to fear. Fear is believing something you can't see will happen. Faith is believing something you can't see will happen. So different to fear. Fear is believing something you can't see will happen. Why, why, why is church so important, Pastor? Because it's the house of faith. Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing. When you come to this house, whether you realize it or not, we preach the Word of faith. As we preach the Word, faith will rise in your spirit. Faith will deliver you from fear. Instead of, instead of, instead of projecting negative emotion, you know, giving the devil opportunity, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Therefore, I am not listening to fear. I'm going to go by faith. I'm going to believe that something I can't see will happen. The blessing of God, the goodness of God, God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the benevolence of God, the kindness of God is going to overtake me in 2016. This is going to be my greatest year. Don't live in fear and shrink your world. Live in faith and increase your world. Somebody say amen. amen.